Welcome to Richmond this morning. It's nice to see you all, especially if you're new or newish to Richmond. Um, it's been an uh, interesting season here at Richmond um, of lots of great and exciting things happening, lots of uh, things to be thankful for. We continue to be thankful for what um, God continues to do in and through us, for the people who are uh, coming into the Richmond Church family and joining us, partnering with us um, on mission here in our neighbourhood. Uh, but we've also been farewelling uh, people, and we've, uh, in a few more weeks, farewelling Andrew and Rach. Um, I got to see Mick this week. So a few weeks ago, Mick, one of our pastors, uh, moved to West Beach as the senior pastor, and I got to go visit him in his office at his church. Mick was actually using an office. <laughs> it's amazing. He's changed a lot already in a couple of weeks. Uh, it was good to spend some time with Mick and to hear from him. Mick and Cammie and the family are doing well. They had their second child in the last few weeks as well, Isabella, uh, um, a second daughter. And so we continue to pray for them as a family. Please keep praying for them uh, as they get used to what it means to uh, lead a church, to be part of a church family and serve in a church as a senior pastor there. Um, check in with him if you get the chance and see how he's going. Send him some love from time to time. I'm sure he'd appreciate that. We've been uh, journeying through a series uh, called Called to Faith, uh, which is a series where we're looking at some of the characters from the book of Genesis, um, a chance for us to uh, follow along with some of the stories of people that God has worked through um, to lead his people, to encourage people, to reveal some of who he is and what he is like. And the story of God in the Bible is filled with stories of faith, uh, men and women and families called to live on an adventure filled with drama and danger. And most of the stories we might be familiar with are stories of people who became leaders, people who challenged the powers of the day, people who conquered enemies, overcame significant obstacles, people who are recognized as the forefathers of our faith. And these are the people whose stories fill the pages of the Bible with tales of their heroics. And you can probably think of some of the names, some of the characters, as we think about the story of God and his people in the Bible. Many of these stories are filled with moments of faith against the odds. Many of these stories are of great leaders overcoming huge challenges, both personal and on behalf of the people that they led. And as we read these stories, it's possible to develop an understanding of being called to faith as a call to leadership, or to understand that being called to faith happens in history-changing moments to history-changing people. But many of the stories are not actually about the great leaders of the day. The stories are about Yahweh, the name the people of God gave to the God that we worship today. And of course, we can learn from these stories. We can learn about the human condition, about faithfulness in big moments, about character and leadership and morality and choices. But that's not the main purpose of these stories. These stories of heroic and grand adventurers are told so that the people of God might know who God is and what he is like. The knights in shining armour in these stories are not the main character. God is the main character of the stories. And in every story, the writers, the storytellers want to emphasise God's strength, God's power, God's wisdom, God's love, God's kindness, God's generosity. So these stories are not about great leaders or great moments, but about a great... God. The stories of the Bible are also part of telling a longer story. They weave together to tell a story of a world beautifully designed, of humanity lovingly created, of God working in the mess of our attempts to flourish, of God himself coming near to his people in his son Jesus, and ultimately of God making all things right. 
And there are two things that I especially love about the stories of the Bible. These are stories of heroes of faith, people that we are connected to and we're part of, with the same, we're part of the same family. And it's easy for them to hold them up as heroes, as saints, as uncommon humans at the heart of God's story in the Bible. But what I love about the way the Bible tells these stories is that they're honest. Honest about the character flaws, failures, weaknesses, stuff-ups, and ordinariness of these heroes. And that's the point. The stories of the Bible are not stories about exceptional humans, but an exceptional God. And it means that I, as I am confronted and comforted by who God is, I can relate to the realness of the stories. I can relate to the realness of the people in the stories. I can relate to Moses running away from what God was calling him into. I can relate to David's small size. Good, I'm glad you're listening. I can relate to Elijah needing a snack and a rest. The other thing I love about the stories of the Bible is that it's not just stories of heroes. The Bible is also filled with all sorts of side characters and side stories. People who don't seem to be central to the trajectory of the story of the Bible. Stories of unseen, fairly ordinary, and sometimes unnamed people who interact with God in wonderful ways. And maybe it's stories about people like this that we find even more relatable. Because most of us, I think, don't feel like we are part of the main event of God's story. We're not sure how we fit into the story of God's people. And a lot of the time, we're pretty sure we're not doing a great job of following King Jesus the way we think we should. Relatable? This morning, our story is about somebody like that. Hagar. And Hagar's story is found in Genesis chapter 16 and 21 as well. We've only read the first half together this morning. And we meet Hagar in the middle of an important story about the beginning of God's new family. God has promised Abraham and Sarai. He changes their names later to Abraham and Sarah, if that's more familiar for you. And he promises them that they will be grandparents of a great nation. Now, Abraham and Sarai are a wealthy Bedouin family who've moved far from their home in a faith-filled response to God. That's what we looked at with Melinda last week. Along the way in the story, they experience a famine. So they moved to Egypt, but Egypt was complicated. Abraham was given lots of wealth, including slaves there. And eventually, Egypt got so complicated that they moved back north towards the Jordan River. Now, about this time, Abraham and Sarai were getting frustrated that they had no heir and that God's promise was still unfulfilled. So this family of faith began to figure it out for themselves. And Sarai decides that she's okay with Abraham taking another wife so that she can get what she wants, a son. And so she takes one of her young Egyptian slaves and organizes a wedding. Now, of course, at this point in the story, we're confronted by the polygamy that's happening here because it is uncommon and illegal in most of our cultural backgrounds. But in this time and place, it was not uncommon. As men became wealthier, they were able to support larger households, and it was not uncommon for them to take more wives as a way of securing the family future and enlarging the house. And Bedouin culture, which still continues to this day, is filled with ancient customs and rules that governed how they operated and how they functioned. 
even to small details like who can enter which parts of the tent, even as you enter the tent, which side of the tent you need to come from. Uh, when we went to Israel a few years ago, we had an experience of meeting some uh, Bedouins in Wadi, Wadi Ram, descendants of people like this. And we were told beforehand to follow the customs, that if we walked in the tent from the wrong direction, that was actually a signal that you're an enemy and not a friend. And probably these days, they're not going to shoot you with a bow and arrow. But we wanted to respect their custom. In those days, those kind of rules and customs ruled how these people did life, how the households functioned, how they checked in with their neighbours, how they related with people around them. And even as head of the house, Abraham and his wife Sarah would have submitted to the ancient customs. Now, I don't want to suggest that the Bible is supportive of polygamy. There's stories of it all through the Bible. But I want to say that just, this is just part of the story, part of the customs of the people that God was working with and coming alongside. So Sarai takes one of her young Egyptian slaves and promotes her. She becomes a wife of the master, a significant promotion in the household. And Sarai's hope is that according to Bedouin and Egyptian customs of the day, that the child will be as much hers as the Egyptian slave. Because Egyptian history tells us that a practice of the day was for women to give birth while sitting between the legs of another woman. And this would symbolize that the baby was as much hers as it was the mother of the child. So it's likely that Sarai was looking to this custom as well, to fulfill for herself the gaining of an heir. And so Abraham takes the Egyptian slave as a wife, and she becomes pregnant. And then Sarai and the slave become entangled in a struggle as the power in the house shifts. Sarai begins to see herself and the slave differently, and Hagar begins to see herself and Sarai differently. Sarai doesn't like the fact that there's another woman with position in the household, especially a woman that is carrying the child of the master of the house. Now, there's probably all sorts of dynamics at play here. The fact now that there was someone else with power, someone else who could order the house, someone else who had some power to run the household business, which was the master of the, uh, the women did in those days. Probably the Egyptian slave that was promoted had greater trust with the other Egyptian slaves in the household. Perhaps she was more well-liked by them, and so they came to her and not Sarai. And as well as power gained by another woman, this other woman had more opportunity to speak with Abraham and influence his decisions. This dynamic, this power dynamic, isn't just about love and romance and sex, like we might imagine in our common understanding of marriage and love and how it works, but also jealousy of power struggles, of shifting dynamics within the house. Sarah was all, Sarai was also known for her beauty. Even Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the ruler of Egypt, tried to marry her. And so maybe she was jealous as an older woman of this young Egyptian slave sleeping with her husband. Sarai realizes that she might have given away a bit too much in an effort to get what she wanted. And so she goes to Abraham and suggests that maybe they've made a mistake. And in an effort to control this Egyptian slave, she mistreats her. And so the slave runs away. 
that the Egyptian slave was given promotion and power, becoming a wife in the house, probably gave her a room in the tent of her, of her master or maybe even a tent of her own, maybe her own servants, opportunity to be part of running the, the family business. This could have been the story of the slave girl who became a wife, but it is probably better called the girl who was unseen because all the way this, through this story, Sarai and Abraham have only referred to her as the slave, the Egyptian, the handmaid. In this story and in the house, she is unseen. Her promotion was given to her as a means to an end. But Sarai's involvement was selfishly driven and the Egyptian slave was treated brutally. The reality of the story is that we have a refugee far from home, far from her family, working for a rich family without a name and a place. This slave girl is then forced to become pregnant by her boss. She's raped and then abused. She is racially, socially, relationally and sexually abused. And then she flees. She runs away as a pregnant single mother. She leaves the abuse of the house, the abuse of the people, the only people that know her, to the isolation of the desert, the place unknown. She travels towards Egypt, back towards her homeland. And in the story, she finds herself at a spring, and she stops to rest. And we're told that an angel of Yahweh finds her. Now, there's lots of a discussion about who this angel is, but like lots of stories of interactions with a heavenly being, we should assume here that in some way the characters that get to have these sort of interactions in the story of the Bible are interacting with God. That seems to be how the stories are told. And for the first time in this story, someone calls Hagar by her name. This is important because until now, we only know her name because the narrator of the story has been using it. And here we have God calling the pregnant Egyptian slave girl by name, Hagar. Hagar, where have you come from and where are you going? And she replies, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. She tells him that she's running away, but she doesn't tell him, notice, the answer to the second question, where she's going. And I think that's because she doesn't know where, because she doesn't have anywhere to go. Where would you go? In the middle of nowhere, so far from family and friends, been away for so long, where do you go when you run, run away like that? Where would you go if you're a single mom, pregnant, with no protection, no income, no family, and an unborn child, where do you go? I think she just wanted to get away. And so she runs away, and God says to her something that I wouldn't want to say to her. He says to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Here we have a pregnant woman experiencing all kinds of layers of abuse, and God says, go back. What's going on here? Well, if we were a church down the road, or a welfare agency in her neighbourhood, we should respond in love and generosity and community. 
But Hagar finds herself in the middle of a desert at a spring as a pregnant single refugee woman. Like lots of stories in the Bible, these stories are messy and unresolved. That should sound a little bit familiar to us. Because lots of life is messy and unresolved. And even with support agencies and welfare systems and social supports, too many women in our neighbourhood face choices that are not ideal, even today. And lots of stories in the Bible are hard to hear. Hard to hear because they are so honest and so brutal often. But they're especially hard to hear to our modern ears. Lots of the stories that we read in the Bible raise questions and are left unanswered. I think this is one of them. That actually the story invites us into the mess and that things aren't great, whatever choice is made. But God doesn't just say, go back. He leaves her with a promise as well. A promise that we need to notice parallels, mirrors the promise that he gave Abraham the chapter before. In that story, Abraham is told by God to go outside of his tent and count the stars. I'm assuming it's at night. Even at night, there's too many to count. And God says to Abraham, that's how many descendants you will have. And here in this story, God says to Hagar, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Here in this story, we have this amazing moment where an unseen, unnamed Egyptian slave girl, homeless, alone and pregnant, is named by God and given a promise from God. And not just any promise, but a promise that parallels the promise God gave to the great patriarch of the whole story of the Bible. This is a wonderful moment for us, I think. For anyone who reads this story, for any of us who don't feel like we're part of the story in some way. Because we have an unseen person, a person in the minority with no power, no position of a different race and a different gender, with no name and no place to call home, experiencing a personal interaction with God, called by name by God and given a promise by God for the future. This is incredible. This story is not about Abraham or Sarai. It's not even about Hagar. This is about God. It's about what we can learn about who he is and what he is like. And one of the things that we learn about God is given to us, is revealed to us in the promise God gives to Hagar. God says to her, as the story goes on, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son and you shall name him Ishmael. We say it Ishmael. Like lots of stories in the Bible, we can figure out what's going on through the names of the characters. Ishmael means God hears. And so Hagar is promised that God hears. God hears an Egyptian slave girl wandering the desert without a plan for the future. Stuck between the abuse of the city, the home she came from, and the desolation of the desert, 
Hagar learns that God hears her cry for justice, hears her sobs of pain, hears her silent screams. The story wants us to know that when everyone around seems to have deaf ears, God listens. When it seems that God only listens to the main characters of the story at a quick read, God is listening to the unseen, the people living on the edges of life. The God of the Bible, this story tells us, is the God who hears even when no one else is listening. And then Hagar does something not many others get to do. She's the only woman in the Bible to do this, and she gives God a name. She calls him El Roi. She calls him the God who sees me. Now, she could have called him here, I think, the God who sees. And that is true. God sees. Elsewhere in the Bible, God is described as all-seeing. In some places in the Bible, it says that God's eyes are in every place. Hagar could have called God the God who sees, but she calls him El-Rohi, the God who sees me. Hagar is the only person in the Bible to call God by this name. And this is a powerful moment that we can't afford to miss in this story. The unseen Egyptian slave can say, I have seen the one who sees me. Just for a moment, I want us to pause. I want you to pause and give you a chance to say this name of God too, to give God this name, to say to yourself, God is El Roi, the God who sees me, the God who sees you. Isn't it profound to think that the God of the story of the Bible is the God who sees you? Most of us are not homeless, pregnant Egyptian slave women. But in our own story of life, we can say, the God who sees me. It's been powerful this week to have that name of God on repeat in my heart and mind. To name God, El Roi, the God who sees me. I think in the past I've read this story like I've read lots of stories in the Bible too fast and too focused on what I think the main characters are, what they're up to. And this story catches us by surprise. Somebody unseen is named by God and gives God a name. Somebody mostly unimportant to the big story of the Bible is written into the story so that we might know something that is true about who God is and what he is like. 
In the story of the Bible, in the story of Genesis, this story undermines the idea that God only speaks with and works with patriarchs and the powerful. In this story, we find a matriarch of faith who parallels the promise of God. We find somebody outside of the cultural expectations of the story being personally engaged by God and called to faith by God. Hagar in this story is called to live by faith in very difficult circumstances by looking to the horizon of the promise given by God, the promise that she is part of the story too, that she is known by God as well, and that she has a purpose in the grand design of God's story. That's a call to faith. Not just a call to grand and heroic moments, a victory over powerful enemies and great adventures, but a call to faith in the unexpected, unseen life of an outsider. I know that many of us feel like that we're not insiders. This story is for many of us. This story helps us to know that that God's call to faith is for everyone. It's a call to love him and love one another and love our neighbour and even to love our enemy. A call to obedience in difficulty, courage in persecution and faithfulness to him in distraction. This story issues a call to faith to those of us who think we don't deserve a call to faith who can't write ourselves into the story. This story is about Al-Ro'i, the God who sees you. Hagar's story reminds me of another story of a woman at a spring. It's the story of the Samaritan woman at the well in Sychar, in Samaria, And Jesus in that story breaks all sorts of cultural norms and rules and sits with her and speaks with her and calls her to faith. And her response, we read in John 4, is to tell everyone, he told me everything I ever did. I think that's another way of saying, he saw me. The God who sees me. He saw me at the well. Someone who was meant to ignore me and keep walking saw me. And he saw my life. And he talked to me anyway, even though he knew my life. And he called me to faith. And because of her, the story in John chapter 4 tells us, many of her town responded to that same call of faith. In that story, we have Jesus interacting with someone he wasn't meant to, with someone who was on the outside of the story. He issued a call to faith to these outsiders, to these unnamed, to these culturally surprising people. The people of God who these stories were written for were not expecting them to be included, and Jesus surprises them. And he takes the time to engage with the Samaritan woman at the well, and the storytellers include her story to tell us something of who Jesus is and what he is like and what it's like to live in his kingdom. 
all of the stories of the Bible are written to tell us about who God is and what he is like and what it means to live for him. They tell us that God hears the cry of the depressed and the lonely and the hurt and the rejected and the poor and the refugee. And they tell us that God sees the unseen, the outsider, the unexpected ones. And they tell us that God's story is about a God who includes and invites and calls to faith any of us, all of us that feel as though we are outside or unseen or not good enough. I was talking to Arthur and Tammy about the story of Hagar this week. Uh, Arthur and Tammy are in Tanzania, and they like to think and write and speak. We're looking forward to them coming to be with us again from August. She put it this way as she described something about Hagar to me. God sees Abraham and Sarai in their vulnerability and calls them to faith and gives them a promise for their future too. We saw that story last week. But as they become powerful and he shows us he shows us in this story that he sees those they mistreat and oppress and acts on their behalf too. In the middle of, the, of a story about the great patriarch Abraham, we're told a story about an unseen slave girl invited to be a matriarch of faith, issued the same promise and the same invitation to faith. And she's called to come out of the wilderness and into the kingdom of God. She's called to surrender her life to the one who hears her and sees her. She's called by name and she gives God a name, the God who sees me. I don't think God told Hagar to go back to Sarai because he wanted her to experience more abuse. As we find out as the story continues in chapter 21, she's eventually kicked out of the household and God provides for her again when she's in the wilderness. Provides for her and for Ishmael, and the story shows us, tells us, that God fulfills his promise to her. God's call to faith to Hagar, his direction to go back, is is about more than her circumstances. It's about her surrender to the one who sees her. It's about her knowing that in the middle of her circumstances, whether it's in the desolation and isolation and loneliness and separation of the desert, or whether it's in the abuse of the city, the home that she comes from. God sees her. God provides for Hagar in the abusive family situation and in the unsupported environment of the desert. Neither option is ideal. Neither option is even good for her. But God hears her and sees her and fulfills his promise to her. Paul unpacks uh, this story of Sarai and Hagar a little bit more in the letter to the Galatians. We don't have time to dig it in all sorts of depth. But one of the points he makes is that many of us find ourselves in slavery like Hagar was. Find ourselves entrapped, enslaved to sin and darkness. And he makes the point that as followers of Jesus, the call to faith is a call from slavery to freedom. He says, look at this story. Here we see Sarai, the mother of the free child. Here we see Hagar, the mother of the child born to slavery. And Paul's point is that all of us, everyone in this story, is called to freedom. He uses it as an example. 
Jesus calls us to surrender ourselves to him, a call of faith to follow him, a call to know that God is the God who sees me. One of the other questions that I just want to ask as we finish up this morning. I think we hear from this story the loud and clear truth that God is the God who sees you. One of the challenges that has struck me is if I want to follow Jesus into kingdom life as he shows us, if I want to be like God as he reveals himself to us, who shows us who he is and what he is like and what it's like to live for him, the question I've been asking myself is, who do I see? How do I see others? Who are the unseen? Who are the unseen for us here at Richmond? Tammy posed this question, and it's been challenging me, haunting me all week. Are we Sarai's making it hard for people in our own community? That's a challenging, confronting question to me. Who are the unseen that I'm making life hard for? I don't think it's the point of the passage, but it's a question that's raised for me. It's who do I see and how do I treat them? Who do I not see that I need to see? This series is helping us to see some of the characters of the story of God in the book of, the, of, book of Genesis and the call to faith that is issued to them. Sometimes that call is to central characters on big adventures. But the point of this story is that the call to faith is to all of us, even to those of us who don't feel like, can't see ourselves in the story. What does that look like? Is that you? I hope today you hear and see the God who sees you.